0: So, here we are with the new year, and it's so interesting to me that uh, we make this big deal about uh, the new year, and yet it's just an imaginary line, isn't it? Just an arbitrary line. I mean, the planet doesn't care. It just keeps spinning. When Marion and I were first married, we lived in an apartment in Turtle Rock in Irvine, right next to this nature preserve, and there was a colony of turkey vultures, that lived in the eucalyptus trees. I like to say it that way. In the eucalyptus trees. Eucalyptus trees. And, you know, every day, you know, whatever was going on, they just were going by. The sun came up, and they waited for the thermals, and they took off and went to the office and did what they did, and then they came back at night. And it didn't matter whether it was a holiday or New Year's or anything else. It's just time is a circle, an endless, seamless circle. And yet for us humans, it's so... Interesting how we want to categorize and put bar lines and, and have all these things and, and break it down so that it's a little bit more manageable. It's such a human thing to do, but it's also useful. It's, a, it's important for us to remember that time is this seamless, endless now. But it's great to have milestones, and it's great to have these changing of the guards, changing and turning corners, so that we can take stock and we can look back and we can look forward. And and it just helps us to do all these these things that we need to do in life. Last night, Marion and I, at 9 o'clock, were watching Times Square uh, in New York. And it was just amazing to watch the camera just pan through the the crowd. There was, I don't know, something like a million people in Times Square. And it was probably the safest place to be on the planet, too. But just, just watching the faces and the people just... Dance. They started off with New York, New York, with uh, um, Frank Sinatra singing. And then I think they moved into uh, Ray Charles singing America the Beautiful. And then it was into, uh, what was it? Oh, it was Louis Armstrong singing It's a Wonderful World. And just the music, the nostalgia, just the, 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 the emotion that those old songs bring out. And just watching the faces, some dancing, some laughing, some mugging for the camera. But it was just also human. It was just all so celebratory. It all just felt like no matter what is going on in the world, at this moment, a million people in Times Square had it together. you know. And we're just playing together and hugging each other and just enjoying a moment. And then the, uh, the interviewer goes out into the crowd and starts asking people if they have any New Year's resolutions. And that didn't go over so well. People hadn't thought through that much. But New Year's resolutions is the big thing that we try to do at this time of year, right? Have you all got any New Year's resolutions? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. I see some no, some yeses, you know. For some of us, New Year's resolutions have kind of become anathema. We don't want to go there anymore because we just know, you know, places like LA Fitness and 24 Hour Fitness, they can book three or four times their capacity because they know that by February they'll be right back down where they need to be again, you know. But New Year's resolutions have been something that have been important to people and I went and did some research. Do you want to know what the top ten New Year's resolutions are? Okay, because I'm going to read them anyway. First one, number one, earn more money. Sound familiar? Lose weight. Get organized. Manage your time better. Spend more quality time with the family. Reduce debt. Help others. Find a soulmate or work on your marriage. Find a better job and quit smoking. Did you find Did you find yours in there somewhere? Okay. Those categories, those ones, are the ones that most often people are trying to make a change. You know, trying to find a place. Nia Vardalis, you know who that is? She was the, the lady from Big Fat Greek Wedding. She has a great one. She says, my New Year's resolution list usually starts with the desire to lose between 10 and 3,000 pounds. <laughs> but I found some other New Year's resolutions that I wanted. You know, and these first few, they deal with technology. I thought this was interesting. I will delete the Facebook app from my phone and only log in to check it once a day. How many of you could actually do that? I won't send a text to someone sitting in the next room or the same room. I will walk wherever I'm walking without staring at, using, or listening to my phone. Oh, could we actually do that? When I hear a funny joke, I will not reply LOL or R-O-T-F-L-O-L. Have you heard that one before? Rolling on the floor laughing out loud. (laughs) I will not bore my boss with the same excuse for taking time off. I will think of some new excuses. I will always replace the gas nozzle before driving away from the pump. I will start buying lottery tickets at a luckier store. I won't get Ubers for journeys that I can walk in 15 minutes. I thought that one was pretty good. I will do less laundry and use more deodorant. I will not... Sit in my living room all day in my pajamas. Instead, I will move my computer into the bedroom. (laughs) I resolve to stop poisoning my family with my cooking. There's a good one. And I will learn what the word resolution means. (laughs) You know, these are funny to us primarily because we know how hard it is to keep a New Year's resolution I mean, we've all tried, we've all failed, and out of our failure comes these kind of of jokes, or at least the way that we look at these intentions, because it is so hard for us to keep a New Year's resolution. And I have some statistics. Did you know that about 97% of New Year's resolutions won't be kept? Did you know that 30% of all resolutions are broken within the first week And most resolutions are abandoned by the third week in January. 45% of Americans usually set New Year's resolutions. But only 8% are always successful in achieving their resolutions. Only 8% of that 45. Now here's interesting. The younger you are, the more likely you are to achieve your resolutions. 39% of people in their 20s achieve resolutions every year or every other year but less than 15% of people over 50 achieve resolutions every year or every other year. So that's the old dog and the new trick kind of idea here, I think. These two last two are interesting. The less happy you are, the more likely you are to set a New Year's resolution. Think about that for a second. The less happy you are, the most likely you are to set a New Year's resolution. Makes sense, right? If you're really unhappy about your life, about your circumstances, about something, then you're going to want to change it, and you're going to use the bar line here to try to get across. But here's the kicker. There is actually no correlation between happiness and resolution setting, or even resolution success. People who achieve their resolutions every year are no happier than those who do not set resolutions at all, or who are unsuccessful in achieving their resolutions. I just found those two really interesting. It kind of tells us that happiness is coming from a completely different direction. We're focused on outcomes. We're focusing on, on achievements, things that we can do to change circumstances to make us happy, but it doesn't work. Happiness is coming from a completely different direction. But, you know, knowing that these resolutions are so difficult creates a sort of skepticism that we're ever going to be able to change at all, really fundamentally change. And so we get some quotes like this, that many people look forward to the new year for a start on old habits. Many, may, may the new year bring you courage to break your resolutions early. My own plan is to swear off any kind of virtue so that I triumph even when I fall. That was Alistair Crowley. Oscar Wilde said resolutions are simply checks that men draw on a bank where they have no account. I thought that was pretty good. And Joey Adams says may all your troubles last as long as your New Year's resolutions. Isn't that a nice benediction? But at the same time, you know, there's something in us that tells us also that this change is necessary. This is something that needs to happen. There are sometimes fundamental changes that we need to make. And I think Albert Einstein captured that sentiment when he said, life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. A new year is on the way and the possibilities are endless. And so if we can keep moving forward, if we can keep working for change that we feel is necessary in our lives, things we like to do, that's what keeps us in balance. That keeps us moving forward. But the question remains, I suppose, is why are resolutions so hard? Why is it so difficult for us to keep a resolution? Resolution. I think it's because resolutions are actually lifestyle changes. They're complete and fundamental changes in the way that we live our lives. If you're going to quit smoking, that's not just one thing. That's a whole cloud of things that needs to happen if you're going to quit drinking, if you're going to go to the gym and you're going to lose weight, whatever you're doing, it's a whole lifestyle change. It's not just one decision. And it's not especially just an intellectual choice, an intellectual decision that we make alone. That's just the starting point. That's the first step, maybe walking in the door. But what the resolution really entails is complete involvement in a repeated Ongoing action that requires discipline, it requires structure to keep getting up and showing up every day, doing something over and over again until that change, that deep change really takes, until we're looking at life in a different way, until our pleasure centers, I suppose, have moved so that we now take pleasure in something that we didn't before something that doesn't have the side effects we wanted, something that doesn't have whatever. But it's a complete change of the way that we live and our attitudes and our viewpoint. And that takes time. It's not just a one-moment thing. We can't just decide to do this. And if you think about it, anything in life that's really worth having is like this. You know, it's the result of repeated action. It's not just one thing that you get. You don't buy it. It's not transferred to you. It's something that over time you develop within yourself. Think about it. The ability to play golf, to play a sport, to play a musical instrument, to speak a second language, to ride the bicycle, to have a relationship, to have a marriage. The things that are most important, most endearing to us are these things that cannot be had any other way except by immersing moment by moment. You know, people make a lot of uh, noise about bucket lists. You all have a bucket list, things you want to do? The problem with a bucket list is, you all know what a bucket list is, right? Things you want to do before you kick the bucket. Okay, just want to make sure we got that. Uh, The problem with a bucket list is, is that we're not defined by the things that we do just once. We're defined by the things we show up and do all day, every day, over and over and over. Think about the people that you value the most in your life. Why do you value them? Because they show up into your life, day after day after day. They're accountable. They're accessible. They're present to you. You can count on them to keep doing what they do. Even if it's just the baker who opens up at six o'clock every morning with warm buns. And you know that you can always go at six o'clock and he will be there and the warm buns will be there. Those are the things that really count. What would happen if we were hit and miss on Sunday and you showed up some Sundays and we were here and sometimes Sundays we weren't, you know, like last Sunday. Oops. How would that be? How could you value, how could you count on the relationship, the community that we have here? It's what we do every day that defines us. Every day that is really, really important. This is what a New Year's resolution is. This is what any resolution is. This is what a change of lifestyle is all about. It's showing up every day to something different until it becomes your new normal. And this is exactly why it is so hard to follow Jesus. It is exactly why it's so far hard to follow this way of Jesus. And you know, it's really why we, and I think it is willful, why we willfully misunderstand Jesus' message. We wish that it could just be an intellectual moment of decision. We were even taught that it was a moment of decision. It would be easier if it were. But really, what Jesus is teaching us is like a resolution. It's a complete lifestyle change. It's not intellectual. It's that thing that is worthwhile in life that we have to keep showing up to over and over. It can't be conferred upon us. It can't be confirmed in us by an outside entity or a church or a ceremony or a priest. It is something that we have to live through enough until we completely understand a different way of living life. A different attitude it's not just if you think about this Jesus salvation it's not a pledge of allegiance to a theology it's not an intellectual decision to believe in a certain God it's a way of life that makes that God visible in every moment of our lives it's a way of living life that opens us up to a presence that is already here That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. We got it all back to front, partly because of the influence of Greek philosophy and Roman law on the early church, but also because that's much easier to do. Can't I just pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and then I'm saved and everything is going to be okay and I just kind of grind it out until I get my reward? But to say that I need to show up, I need to actually expend energy to be present, to be mindful, to, to be all the things that Jesus was in every relationship in his life. That's like a New Year's resolution. And most of us start, and then within that third week of January, we've fallen back. I don't know how many retreats I've been to, weekend retreats, you know, from Friday to Sunday, and you have this mountaintop experience, and you think, oh, this is life-changing, my life has changed, and I'm going to be a different person Except by Thursday, I'm already back into old patterns again. Because it's a rededication every day, every single day, a getting up and rededicating. And maybe that sounds like a grind to you, but you do it enough and it becomes your new normal to get up and rededicate. And even though it is so difficult at the beginning, a few years out, it's like walking across the room like the tightrope walker who walks across the, the cable as easily as you walk across the room. It becomes our new normal. But we have to live it enough to get there. And then if we fall away, then everything atrophies and we're right back into the mix again. This is the way of Jesus. This is the spiritual journey. This is the contemplative way. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And he's working so hard to try to get across these essential truths about the difference between religiosity and an actual spiritual journey. So much of his teaching is focused on this. And there's one in particular that I wanted to read this morning. And we typically call it the parable of the sower, uh, the parable of the sower and the seeds. But really, more specifically, it should be the parable of the four soils. Because really, the the main point of this parable is not the sower and the seed as much as it is the quality of the four soils that it falls into. Let's take a read here at Matthew 13, verse, right at verse 1, and it's in your uh, inserts or it's up there on the screens, I'm sure. Matthew 13. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him, and so he got into the boat and he sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell in the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. I love the ending there. He who has ears, let him hear. That is a Jewish idiom, an idiomatic expression. It sort of means like, unstop your ears. It means allow yourself to be open enough to hear something that you haven't heard before. To hear a truth that's coming from a direction that you didn't give any credence to before? Are you willing to have a beginner's mind? Are you willing to become a newcomer again? To hear something as if for the first time. That's really all included in this idea. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear something deeper than what is just on the surface. Hear something beneath and beyond what you think you already understand. Now, this simple parable, it's interesting. I've heard some criticism from some uh, biblical scholars saying, you know, it really seems like the sower here is pretty sloppy, pretty inefficient, just throwing seed willy-nilly all over the place. You know, why aren't there neat rows? And why aren't, you know, he's being very careful with the seed. The seed is precious. You know, it should go right into the furrow right in here. But what Jesus is doing is depicting exactly the way ancient agriculture took place in the Galilee, in the first century, because the terrain of Galilee is different, there are some flat areas, but there 's a lot of hilly areas, and some of it is terraced there 's lots of rocks in the land you know that, that can 't really be moved easily, especially by small subsistence farmers. The plows were really nothing; they were just sticks that were shaped, or maybe some kind of frame that was built around a metal you know blade that was pulled by oxen and they only had one hand to the plow and the other one was, was trying to hold on to the, the team of oxen as they were going through. And so it wasn't like what we think of um, in terms of industrial agriculture. Not only that, the roads at that time were mere footpaths and they just went through where they went through and so you could have a, a, a bit of land that was yours to farm but there was a footpath that went through it. And it was packed down hard because it was people walking and camels and other types of of animals. And so what the farmer would do would be first to wait for the first rains. They call them the early rains, the rains that came in late October and early November, because those light early rains in Israel, it doesn't rain from May to September. There's no rain at all. And so the farmer would wait for those first rains because that would loosen up the soil. And then they would go out and scatter the seeds first and then go back and plow where they could plow, which would then cover the seeds over with dirt. Because if the seeds weren't covered quickly, of course, the birds would come and eat them. And they would only plow up to and alongside these footpaths and just leave them open. And so any of the seed that landed on the footpath, of course, is going to be scooped up by the birds. And these rocks that were in the field would be covered by a kind of a moss or a kind of a fungal kind of growth. And so any seeds that landed on there course, there's a lot of rich nutrient there. And so they'd spring up really quickly, but they couldn't reach beyond the rock. And so they had no depth. And so you're starting to see, and the people, of course, are hearing Jesus' story here. And they're, of course, pinging with everything because this is what they see every single day. They understand that these small patches of land that these subsistence farmers had often had thorns in them And they had the tares that would grow up, the weeds that would grow up along with the wheat and the barley that they were growing that would also choke out the foodstuffs. And so what Jesus is doing is reflecting exactly what is going on. And it perfectly describes the listener's experience. But he's saying, yeah, but he who has ears, let him hear. He's trying to point to something deeper. Because the farmer allows the first rains to prepare the soil enough to start the whole process. And what Jesus is literally doing is he's raining these parables down on a people to start to prepare their spiritual soil. It's a people that are hard packed, a people who think they understand what they already know, religiously and through their other teachers. And they are not ready to receive anything. And a plow trying to plow before the rains is just going to skid across the surface. You know, those light plows, they'd had no other way to dig in. And so there has to be a preparation. And the parables do that. The parables rain down on these people. And that's exactly what his followers are asking him. Why are you speaking in parables? What's going on here? And listen to Jesus' response at verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? I just said that. And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now this is a really difficult passage for us, isn't it? Doesn't it sound completely exclusionary? Doesn't it sound like Jesus and God have already picked out the winners and the losers and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it? And this is the problem with reading something like this from a Semitic source, from an ancient Eastern source, This is an idiomatic way of speaking. It is a typically Hebrew way of speaking because what Hebrews do is they show the results and the consequences of something as the purpose. You see what's happening here? They show results and consequences as purpose because to them God is always the actor. But they also understand that really what's happening here is just cause and effect. They know that. But the way that they place it in, in their jargon, in their way of speaking, it sounds like God is excluding some. But all it is, is we are making the choice or not making the choice. And these kind of, of, of passages are sprinkled all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it's difficult for us. Remember at the end of the Our Father where Jesus says, if you forgive your brother, then your father in heaven will forgive you. But if you don't forgive your brother, then neither will your father in heaven forgive you. And now it sounds like we're trained seals again, working for the little fish. That forgiveness and love is conditional again, when clearly the scripture says that it's not. But what is happening here, it's cause and effect. When we forgive, we open ourselves up to the forgiveness of God that is already here and present. But as long as we hold resentment, as long as we hold on to our victimhood, we will never be aware that God's forgiveness and love and reconciliation is always available because we're holding on to that condition in our hearts cause and effect it's our choice but the way it's placed in scripture it sounds like it's god's choice now the people understood this they understood their own way of speaking but we don't anymore many are called but few are chosen oh man you know so i got to wait until i'm chosen no the way to understand that phrase is many are called but few choose to be chosen same thing it's our choice cause and effect Once we open ourselves up, the choice has already been made. Once we open ourselves up, the forgiveness is always and already present. And so here, this highlighted section here that I have, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. It's only not been granted because they're not ready to receive it yet. They're not ready to perceive beneath the surface yet. They're not ready to let go of what they think they already know yet. God's not doing that to them. They're doing it to themselves. But the parables are the rain that loosens up the soil. If they're willing to go down that thought experiment, if they're willing to go down and immerse themselves in this story to think about it for a while, what's going on, it breaks up what they think they know and starts to prepare them. And so literally, for whoever has, to him more shall be given because they're already open to receiving to him who has not even that will be taken away again that's not god doing it to the people to us it's us either being ready or not ready to receive what is always and already here for us when the teacher is when the student is ready the teacher appears it's that kind of idea here and so this is what jesus is trying to get across without a fundamental shift in consciousness nothing can be quote-unquote, given. Nothing can be received until that happens. The parables that Jesus tells, these stories that are non-linear, that are not right on the nose, but take us on a journey of discovery, are what prepares us for this shift in consciousness, prepares us to go someplace different. The word in Aramaic is matlah, matlah, which means to stretch out, it means to extend, or it means to provide cover, and it was the word that they used for a story or for a riddle. But this idea of stretching out and extending and providing cover, it reveals and it hides at the same time. It creates a paradox. It creates something that we have to work through. We can't just make a decision about it. We can't resolve it you know, non-contradictorily. We have to actually work through the the paradox. And that is what creates the unlearning process that takes us through. So now Jesus is actually going to interpret for his inner circle what it was that he's saying with this parable. And take a look at verse 18, what he says here. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word And the worry of the world and deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And so that seems pretty understandable, but really what's going on here again is that even the interpretation here Jesus is figurative at the same time. This evil one that he talks about, the word there is bisha, which we've said before means unripe, immature, not yet ready for prime time, not ready to make decisions or perform actions that a person was designed to as a mature individual. The other word for evil one is satana, the word we get Satan from which means an adversary, actually. It means that which causes us to turn aside, causes us to turn astray. And so these birds here, the paratha, come from a verb that means to fly about, to flutter, to squander, to dissipate. It's kind of like being ADD, where you can't focus and you're all over the place at once. What he's pointing back to here is, again, our inability to stay focused, our inability to stay on a path that we're always looking about, we're always being attracted by the last shiny thing that we saw and moving in that direction. Ever walk into a room to do a specific thing and then you remember you got to do that and do that and do that and half an hour later you haven't done the thing and you've forgotten the thing that you walked into the room for? It's kind of like that with our faith. You know, to fall on that footpath and be fluttered and and frittered away and dissipated by these birds. The rocks, suah in Aramaic, is a verb that means to stop up or to obstruct. Figuratively, it speaks of a closed heart or hard-hearted stubbornness. And of course, from that verb comes the word for a rock, a physical hard, hardness. And so once again, we see that in both these cases, this is about our choices about our inabilities. And the thorns, kubah, another verb that means to feel pain or sorrow, to arrest natural growth, to hold back. Talking about people who are still immersed in their old ideas, who think they understand and are unwilling to give up the security of thinking that they know and have it all figured out. Every one of these is figurative, because it's pointing back to us pointing back to conditions of the heart pointing back to attitudes that we have fears that we have so are we in good soil are we good soil i suppose is the question that we want to ask ourselves now you're all here you're showing up on sunday i would assume that your spiritual journey is important to you in some way and you're trying to follow it somehow during the week in between gatherings when we are here. So does that mean that we are good soil? Which of the four soils are we? You know, How do we even start to understand this? The greatest disservice that has ever been done to this particular parable is to make this about believers and unbelievers, which typically the church has done when it's taught this parable. It's the way I was taught probably the way I see some heads going up and down, maybe the way that you were taught as well, that the person who represents the good soil is the believer, is the Christian. The other three are examples of those who are not believers. It becomes an us and them sort of thing. But the truth of the matter, it has very little to do with us and them and everything to do with us versus ourselves. Because what Jesus is pointing out is that we all have all four soils within each one of us. Each one of us is divided. Each one of us has trouble sticking to and doing the things that we know we need to do, the changes that we need to make. Each one of us has strongholds and fears and hard places that we're unwilling to let go of, unwilling to give up, because at least they have felt like some sort of lifeline to this point in our lives. Each one of us has all four soils. This isn't about believers and unbelievers. It's about believers trying to move through a New Year's resolution. Revolution, that's good too. That works. It's about believers trying to stay on this path and finding that they do sometimes and they don't. Remember that famous uh, section from Romans 7? Paul, you know, having his little meltdown over there. You know, why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? The things that I hate, those are the things I do. The things that I know to do, I don't do. What a wretched man am I. Where is there any help for someone like me? He's expressing the four soils within himself. This isn't something that we just switch on and then we go. You know, we rise up out of the waters of baptism and we're a new creature in Christ that is completely different, looks at life different and is going to experience things differently. If that's what we think, we're, by the third week of January, <laughs> disappointed because things have not changed. Why have they not changed? Because we haven't kept showing up to everything that Jesus shows us to show up to. And this is what it's all about. There is a concept in, in the recovery community of the committee. Y'all heard of the committee? That's that internal set of voices that is constantly talking to you. And one goes this way and the others going that way. It's kind of like the angel and the devil sitting on your shoulder. You know, it's all that stuff going on. The internal committee that is driving you absolutely insane and taking you at cross purposes to what you're purposing to do, your resolution. Well, the Hebrew have the concept of the inner community as well. And the whole goal of life is is to synchronize the inner community with the outer, outer community, that everything and all your desires and everything that you are inside is connected with all the people that are in your community on the outside and you become integrated. Everything is working together. Everything is one thing going forward because that's how we are inside. We have lots of different voices that are pulling us in different ways. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is what following Jesus looks like. And if this year we're going to make any New Year's resolution, there's just one resolution that you're going to make this year. Maybe it should be to grow new ears. Maybe that should be the resolution. To grow new ears that are willing to not have it all figured out. To not feel that these ears have heard everything, absorbed everything, figured everything out. Maybe our New Year's resolution is to allow ourselves to become newcomers again, allow ourselves to take the position of the beginner and the beginner's mind, to allow the rains to soften us up and break up the soil enough so that little plow. Can create a furrow in us so that something new can be planted there. Maybe that's all we really need to do, is to allow ourselves to have that kind of openness, to begin to see Jesus, to see our faith, to see salvation itself, our spirituality, as a new lifestyle that we actually live, and not just a moment of agreement to a belief, to a system, to a theology some sort of intellectual understanding. But to realize that we're living out this salvation, we're living out this becoming more and more, that we need to show up to it every single day, to a new attitude, to presence, to gratitude, to see how everything has been given to us here. Everything already is ours, if we can see it that way. Can we show up to vulnerability every day? To be willing to put ourselves out there, to drop our shields, to love first, even when there's no guarantee of return. Can we show up to these principles every day? And when we get hurt, and when things do not go our way, to maybe take a moment to lick our wounds, but then to turn right again and become vulnerable again, and to become newcomers again, and to be open again, to unlearn the thing that we need to unlearn so that we can take root and seed of the thing that God is giving us. Jesus is not a bucket list. <laughs> Salvation is not something you do just once. It's what you show up to over and over, every day, all day long, willing to show up only every, as, every day as that newcomer, the loose soil, ready to accept what Jesus has, what God is giving us. That would be A New Year's resolution worth keeping. And if we bring our intention to that, the promise is that God will meet us there, in that space, in that moment, every time. And we will not go away void. The word never goes away void. Let's pray. Father, at the beginning of this new year, help us to work toward clearing the decks, cleaning the slate, grabbing that newcomer mind, that beginner's mind, so that we can start to bring in the new things that you have for us, the constant flow of newness in life that really is your spirit, in this journey. Help us to unstop what needs to be unstopped and unlearn what needs to be unlearned. And help us to use this new day of 2017 as a jumping off point, as a place of departure. And by the third week of January, when we're starting to lose it and we realize it, that we don't become despondent, we don't, throw baby out with bath water and give up, but that we would simply return to this moment again and start as newly as we are starting today. Grant us those new starts every time we need them to get back on the path and find out who we really are in you, Father. Thank you, Lord, so much for everything that you've given to us. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.